your Bible and go to Hebrews and let us briefly walk through the first half of your paper, which is just introduction or review. So really what this is, we've done this basically every week in some form or fashion um, leading up to the spot we're in. And the reason I wanted to give it to you in this longer, no blank format is because we basically reached the conclusion um, or at least the climax, the final, here's the point of the book. And then you may realize there's well, still three, four chapters left from this point. Well, in some ways that's therefore, here's because Jesus is all of this. Here's some things we can do. Here's some examples of that. Here's, it's, it's more application oriented from this point forward, which is going to be very interesting. Some of the most memorable passages in Hebrews do come from the passages we haven't gotten to, but the argument of the book of Hebrews climaxes tonight. And it, we, we already know what it's going to say. We, he's not exactly beat around the bush. He's made it very clear what he's trying to say. But up to this point, I wanted you to have a nice, solid, somewhere in your notes at some point, a step-by-step, here's the paraphrase main argument of the book of Hebrews. And so I'm giving you this and just a um, simple, I know it's wordy, but Hebrews is a lot wordier than my paragraph. So this is simple compared to the book of Hebrews. So first idea, and this really comes from the first paragraph in uh, chapter one, the first four verses, Jesus is the perfect prophet, divine son, incarnated savior of the world. It just opens with those assumptions. This is this glorious Jesus that we are going to talk about. I guess before we go through that, remind ourselves of the context of Hebrews. Hebrews was written to what group of people? Hebrews. Christian Hebrews experiencing what problem? Persecution by just non-Christian Hebrews. So the whole thing's a Jewish conversation, but the Jewish Jews were persecuting the Christian Jews in hopes that they would do one specific thing. Apostatize, to fall away, to leave Jesus and go back to Moses. So the book of Hebrews is designed to make an argument that you cannot do that. That makes no sense to leave Jesus and go back to the law of Moses without Christ. So he starts off just with this glorious picture of who he is. He's this perfect prophet, divine son, incarnated savior of the world. And then he moves into the next argument, which takes two chapters. He became a man, so a human being, slightly lower than the angels, but has inherited a greater name, which is the Son of God, and a greater position that is at the right hand of the Father. So the idea is that human beings are a little lower than the angels on the scale of whatever that scale is. And so the humans are a little lower. But now that Jesus is in his incarnated, uh, glorified post-resurrection state, exalted to the right hand of the Father, he's greater in name and position. The name being the divine Son or the Son of God, position being the right hand of the Father. Then the argument progresses, so we're in chapter 3 now. Jesus is also the greater, he's also greater than Moses because Moses didn't produce obedience and didn't, that's kind of worded weird, he didn't produce obedience or lead his people all the way to the promised land, which is also called the promised rest. Those are used the same. So it's a negative example. Jesus is greater than Moses because of what Moses didn't do. You follow that? And if you read through there, you'll see that logic. 
And we get a little further. So that's kind of three and four. Towards the end of four, we get this plea. We can enter that promised rest if we follow Jesus. So unlike Moses, he didn't get them there. We can get there if we follow Jesus because he's a faithful high priest. So that was all set up. And now he's going to spend basically the rest of his argument explaining why Jesus is our high priest and what that means. So that's why there's several subpoints under the next one. So as a high priest, Jesus offers better salvation. The literal word in there was eternal, eternal salvation. But it's better than the old covenant because, number one, he was made perfect by suffering. He wasn't marred by sin. He was appointed by God's unchangeable oath. Now, what was that significant? Do you remember? God's unchangeable oath. Because it was the same from the Old Testament to the New. Well, that is true, but what was the point he was trying to make? Why, why does that make it reliable? Because God... Because God, God, God can't lie. Exactly. Did you say that, Sue? Yeah. Well, if you said it, it doesn't count. Jim gets credit. So, boom. I'm going to, you know. Yeah. Brian. One point. Zero. Zero points. Brian, did you refer to your elder? Wow. Okay. Well, maybe I'll yield to that then. Okay. All right. So, next. And this is the, the last section of his argument was he is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now that's the one that there's a lot of lingo. He starts that conversation in chapter 5, if you remember. We have that parenthetical, can you lose your salvation question. But then we come back to the order of Melchizedek. And really that took us all the way up to the last few paragraphs we've been in. And the main idea of Jesus being after the order of Melchizedek is what? What's the main idea behind Jesus being in that priesthood instead of the Levitical priesthood? It's better. Better why? Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And since Sue didn't answer, that's double zeros. So that's somehow that's worse. All right, so Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Levi was technically still in Abraham's loins. And so Jesus is not a high priest of Levi. He's a high priest like Melchizedek. And so he's greater than the Levitical priesthood as a whole. And then we got into this section explaining that how he did his priesthood. So this is where we get into that tabernacle not made with hands. You remember that conversation? That's going to come up several times in tonight's passage. So Jesus, there should be an apostrophe there, the possessive. Jesus' priestly ministry was performed in the true tabernacle of God, not the earthly representation. So he's doing the real sacrifice in the real temple, in the real holy of holies, in God's presence. Then where we ended last week, the new covenant applies an effectual work of redemption to the heart of its members. So you may remember he compares the Old Covenant to the New Covenant by quoting the Old Covenant, predicting the New Covenant. 
from Jeremiah. I'm going to write a new covenant. And where was he going to put that covenant? The new covenant was promised to be written where? On our hearts. On our hearts and in our minds, as opposed to on tablets of stone. Kelly. Okay, so let me give you a really short answer to that because that's kind of a church history question more than a theology question. Church history-wise, what went wrong with Catholicism is they ended up with a two-level Christianity. And in the New Testament, we don't see a two-level Christianity. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. You are a priest. You are these things in the kingdom of God. But we recognize in church life very quickly that there's people who get it and people who don't really get it. In our world, we would say those are the real believers versus people playing church. Well, their answer instead was, well, here's your clergy, here's your laity. So we got saints, we've got priests separate from the normal people. You give that enough time to evolve, and then you've got two structures or two levels of Christianity. By the time of the Reformation, of course, it's super polluted and going crazy. But I think that's more of a a trajectory thing than necessarily they set out to redo something the Old Testament was doing. Now, we could probably make parallels, but I'd say they weren't necessarily purposeful. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if you're going in that direction, it's easy to look to the Old Testament for examples of that, because they did have that in the Old Testament, but we don't have it in the New. And that's really the book of Hebrews. That's exactly the point. We don't have that. There's one mediator, which is what we'll be in, where we're going. All right, so we were, the new covenant applies an effectual work of redemption to the hearts of its members. So the covenant's written within, not just without. So where we left off then, halfway through chapter 9, right after he makes that really extended quote, if you remember, it was it's a super long quote in the end of chapter 8 from the book of um, Jeremiah. Then he makes a comparison to what they were doing in the literal tabernacle or the literal temple. He talks about the Ark of the Covenant, the Bread of the Presence. We, we drew our little map. That's uh, a map. Our little diagram. You had the Holy of Holies. Um, or sometimes the most holy place. I cannot write and speak. And this was just the holy place. And he detailed how the priests would come in here regularly. And how often did they come in here? Once a year. Once a year. And what did they do when they were in there once a year? Sprinkled blood on there. Sprinkled the blood on there. And so there was a curtain here. And the author of Hebrews is saying, as long as that curtain exists, you know that their sacrificial system doesn't work. As long as the curtain exists... The sacrifices don't work. Why? Because what's the sacrifice supposed to be doing? Cleansing you of your sin. So if you've been cleansed of your sin, why couldn't you go in here? Well, you can't go in here because you're a sinner. But wait, I thought we just cleansed you of your sin. No, not, not really. So as long as the curtain exists, the system's not working. But when Jesus died on the cross... 
What's the gospel account say? Tore it up. Tore that curtain up. Symbolizing what? We can go in. We have access to God's presence now. Um, that's, so that's where the argument ended. And we're going to pick up now in verse 11 of chapter 9 and walk through just some really awesome verses. So I hope you can connect with the theology that's going on here. So chapter 9, verse 11. So he just went over what was going on in the Old Testament. Now, New Testament. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Now note how he's going to use his lingo. And I'm just going to put it on the board so that you can you can see it clearly as we read. Because the book of Hebrews is, like I've said, it's very good Greek. That doesn't necessarily translate to really good English. And so he's going to say a structure by saying what it is versus what it isn't. So he entered through the what? The perfect tent, but not what? Made with hands. Not made by hands. You see this sort of set up a couple times. So he's in the greater perfect tent that is not made by hands, that is not of creation. And here we're not saying that the temple in heaven is uncreated because in the beginning God created heavens and the earth. Heaven heaven itself is created. What do we mean here then when we say not of creation? It's not earthly. It's not earthly. And beyond just not us, it's like it's, it's not in our realm. It's in the other realm. So not made by hands, not of creation. He entered... You can underline this it's three letters or three words. He entered once for all, very important, into the holy places, and not by means of blood of goats and calves. So what is not goats? Now that I've had goats, I understand why this didn't work. <laughs> They're not innocent. So the, their blood is useless. Okay, that was a joke. Right, so it's not goats and calves. So what's it going to be instead? But by means of his own blood. So he's going into the perfect tent that is not the one here. Offering his own blood that is not the blood of goats and calves like the Levitical priests did. It's not like that at all. He's using his own blood. And then what has this done? It says, whoop, I'm shaking. The Thus securing. Oh. Well, yeah, we're still in. Sorry. We're in verse 12, right? Right. That means, okay. Thus securing an eternal redemption. Okay. Let's think about that word eternal for just a moment. That's also your first blank. Or two blanks. Eternal redemption. Do you remember the tricky part about the word eternal? We talked about this a few times now. Eternal. What's that word mean in the Bible? Everybody's scared to answer. <laughs> For it, it implies forever. It does not mean forever. 
And those are different. You could have something that was eternal that did not last forever. The time after the resurrection. Okay. The time after the resurrection. So this is the present age. And then this would be the what? The eternal. We could call it the age to come. We see that expression. Eternal age. And so if something exists in that age, it's eternal. Because it's in that age. So for example, if you're back on the new heaven and new earth, and let's assume Gaucher was here, because it's going to be rebuilt. I don't know. Gaucher might not make the other side. But uh, hypothetically, let's just, let's just pretend that Gaucher was here, and you, you drove over to Gaucher or flew over to Gaucher or walked or swam. However you get from Jerusalem back to here, you get here, and you build a house, hypothetically. I'm not saying you will. Or we'll even want to, but just to say you do, that's an eternal house. And then you could tear it down the next day. But it was still an eternal house. Why? Because it existed. Because it existed in the eternal age. Right? So he's going to give us now, by implication, hold on. Um, if you're in this age and you can't die, which is what the humans will experience, um, eternal very quickly gets connected to how long and how long will Jesus be king in this age how long will heaven be on earth during this age All right, you see where that's going so consequently eternal starts to have this connotation of forever even though most literally it refers to when but that when is eternal in both senses I know that was complicated but y'all tracking with me well enough alright so in this particular passage we're not talking about an eternal house talking about eternal redemption. Why in the world would you call it eternal redemption? It's certainly not temporary, but to say that it exists here, what would that imply if you're back here? It doesn't have to be redone. So it doesn't have to be redone. We already got that word once for all. The sense here, where I'm getting at, the sense of calling something eternal over here, and we're actually going to get several expressions, eternal somethings over here, is the concept of guaranteed. If something's here that belongs to you, you have an inheritance over here, for instance. What does that say about the version of you back here? Technically, you could say you don't have it yet, but that's not the point I'm making. Yeah. You know that it's there. It's guaranteed. <laughs> it's guaranteed to happen. Or think time travel movie. And you go to the future and you see yourself walking around. Then you come back to the past. What are you tempted to believe about yourself now? That you will live till then. You can't die until you get at least that far, right? Okay, weak analogy, but y'all can work with it, okay? <laughs> Fair enough? Fair. No? Okay. <laughs> All right. What I'm getting at, just to make sure I don't want it to be unclear, Jesus is providing eternal redemption. It's redemption that is the basis of our relationship with him for all of eternity, this whole block. He's giving us that eternal redemption at what moment? When did that happen? Oh, when he died. That happened on the cross. 
So technically, that future eternal redemption, from our vantage point, happened 2,000 years ago. And that's significant, and there's a lot of theology we can get into because of that. But this is the main thing. So Jesus accomplished eternal redemption for his people here. Once for all. So if you've got this in your future, what does that also imply? You can't lose it. Nothing can change. He accomplished eternal redemption for you back here. That's the basis of everything he's been trying to get at in the book of Hebrews. This is perfectly effectual. That's going to get even more clear as we go. Let's keep going. So verse 13, throwing a marker around, making y'all pay attention. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So just rewording that in just redneck English. If the Old Testament did anything, how much more is Jesus going to do something? All right, that's the structure of this sentence. So if, if all of that stuff in the Old Testament did anything, then verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience? So just to take some of the phrases out. How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to service of the living God? So make sure we're filling in these blanks. The second one is once for all. The sacrifice of Christ was once for all. How many times is Jesus going to die on the cross? One time. Did he do it right the first time? Yes. Yes. Did he do it effectually the first time? Absolutely. This is the point. His death on the cross accomplished eternal redemption at that point in history. He did his work. You participate in it later, but when did it happen? In the past. So when Jesus died on the cross, atonement took place at that moment. And that's super significant theologically. And we might get there, we might not. All right, so then the blood of Jesus purifies our conscience. Conscience. We don't use this word enough. Conscience. Somebody give me a quick definition of conscience. Jiminy Cricket. It's better than nothing. Better than nothing. Well, what what does that mean? Let's explain what that little cricket is doing. It's our moral compass. Moral compass, voice in your head. We're, We're in the right realm. Tells you you're doing something wrong. It's kind of your internal gauge of whether something is good or bad, morally speaking. Does everyone have one? Yes. Yes. The Bible is very clear about that. Every human being has a conscience. Now, does that mean everyone obeys their conscience? No. (laughs) Do you always obey your conscience? (laughs) Some of us do it better than others. Um, Paul would say he kept a clear conscience. The Apostle Paul. 
even when he was persecuting Christians, had a clear conscience about doing it. Yes, that's that's exactly what the conscience is. Yes, this, yeah, all of us. I think because we are image bearers, have an internal moral compass that could be functioning to different degrees, but it's there. You you believe in a conscience? Yeah, I mean you can study the conscience even outside of the Christian worldview. Where'd that sucker come from? You know, that's that's weird. And that's called the moral argument for God's existence. That's what got C.S. Lewis. Just, you know, he's so more moral argument. So when you're saying once it. for all, it's once for all mankind, not once for all. I think that's the proper noun to throw in at the end. Okay. Once for all time. So here's our problem. This is a significant question, and I don't know if it's the one you're asking or not. I think it is. But if it is, just just work out the logic. If Jesus secured eternal redemption once for all people, all people would be saved. Does that make sense? That would have to be. God would have no wrath to pour out on them. It would all be gone. And then you have to read the book of Revelation and say, well, where'd the extra wrath come from? There's not any. It, it's, so that's a, we're getting into the weeds, though. So let's, uh, <laughs> you don't have to go Leave there the right now. Leave the bunnies alone. Leave the bunnies alone. Okay. Now, okay. I said we're getting into the weeds. It's about to get a lot worse. Okay, let's go. Um, <laughs> verse 15. We're going we're gonna to dig in and find the dirt. Let's pull out all the weeds, I guess. <coughs> Therefore, here's the conclusion of the matter. He, who's he? Jesus. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Mediator of a new covenant. All right, what's the mediator in a covenant? Do you have any idea? Arbitrator. Okay. The go-between. Those aren't bad. Another biblical word we use for that instead of mediator? Ambassador. Those are all good. The other word that we see a lot is head, representative. All right, so let's just, remember a few weeks ago we looked at some of these Old Testament covenants? All of them are named after the human person. And all of those, what would that human person be? The mediator. He'd be the head. So in the Adamic covenant, Adam was the representative, and did Adam make any decisions on your behalf? Yes. One particular one. Yeah. And uh, what decision was that? Yeah. He, he made the decision that you would be a sinner. Was there really any chance that somebody's going to be born and just not sin? No. Not happening. Adam made a decision for all of us as our representative, as our mediator between himself and and us, and God, that sin would enter the world. Right? Moses, same thing. Mosaic covenant, and he's the specific one the author of Hebrews is talking about here. So Moses is our representative, the mediator between us and God. Now, he clearly orchestrates this role. And so as the mediator, he's representing what people to God? 
the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, the Hebrews, in the Old Testament, he goes up on the mountain, he speaks to God on their behalf, he speaks to them on God's behalf, he's the go-between, God makes the covenant technically with and through Moses to the people. He's the representative of the covenant. Now in the new covenant, that mediator is Jesus. So it's expressly said he's the mediator of the new covenant. And the new covenant is the new, well, so what do we usually call it in the Bible? New Testament. New Testament. Same thing. So he's the mediator of the New Testament so that those who were called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is one of the coolest verses in Scripture. So we have a mediator, and it says, since a death occurred. What death has occurred? Jesus' Jesus' death. So when Jesus died, he shed his blood. We already saw in verse 12 what that blood accomplish? Eternal redemption. So this new covenant mediator has accomplished eternal redemption so that those who were called are going to receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now, when does that inheritance come? In the eternal age. In the eternal age. This is really referencing, we'll see very clearly in a few minutes, well, a few minutes, in a few weeks, as we get further in, this is the resurrection. So we're guaranteed, if Christ is our mediator, through his death, we're guaranteed to get that eternal promise, which is the eternal inheritance. Now, let's look at the next one. There's two more blanks. Two word, all members. I want you to see this. All members of Christ's covenant are effectually saved at the cross. Effectually. You know the word effectually? I can spell that one. Pretty proud. I also know the difference between effect and effect. And there's a big difference in the meaning here. You know the difference between the two words? Anybody want to tell me the difference between the two? Everybody's like, uh, well. Do it. Say it. Sometimes. They're, they're both can be either. That's not the difference. So Effect changes something as far as the effect. Yeah, so, so if someone dies, it may affect you. Right. It may cause change. Right. It causes you to change. Um, effect produces a specific change. Um, so, like, if something bad happens, you could say it affects us. If something bad happens and you say, that effected grief in us, it produced a specific change. That's why we usually use this word instead of that one, because we don't usually mean something specific, we just mean something general. Follow the difference? So if the idea here is it produces a specific thing in, 
to say that Jesus' death on the cross effectually saved people at that moment, what do we say? Did it happen then, right there? It happened then. All of it. Your eternal redemption happened when Jesus died on the cross, not when you got saved. Let that blow your mind for a second. Your eternal redemption took place when Jesus died on the cross. You felt it later when you received it in time, but it happened when he died on the cross. Is this a difference in Reformed theology versus the others? Yeah, it is a difference, but I would say it's it's what's here in Hebrews. That's that's my thing. Because otherwise, what's your option? The redemption has to be once for all, not once each time. Those are different. Also, it would mean when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't actually do anything. He only made something possible. That he make redemption possible if you jump through certain hoops, or did he actually atone for sin at that moment? Those are big difference. And that is specifically the difference between Reformed and Arminian. One says Jesus effectually accomplished redemption when he died on the cross. Arminianism would say Jesus made redemption possible by his death on the cross, which is not the lingo I get from reading Hebrews. But anyway, I'm not, I don't, I'm going to argue about it, but uh, that's what I think it says quite clearly. <laughs> All right, so we'll keep going. On that note, we'll keep going. All right, so let's read verse, where are we at, 16? All right, for where a will is involved. Now, how many translations say will there? Testament. Okay, the Greek word there is exactly the same Greek word as covenant. He has not changed his lingo. We have just changed ours to work in English. The problem is, is in English... That just messes up the whole conversation. So in their world, a covenant and a will, testament, those are all exactly the same thing, applied in different scenarios. A marriage, example of a covenant. If you have a will about what happens to your stuff when you die, that was just another example of a covenant. All right, so, so just put that word in here. But the reason your translation says will is because he's applying this idea to what happens when you make that kind of covenant, a last covenant, a covenant for how your stuff is to be distributed. Does that make sense? So that's what he's doing. So for while the will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. So think about it. My parents have a will, but what happens to their fortune when they die is a hypothetical scenario because it's more like what happens to their debt, but you know what happens to their resources all right, that will does not matter until what happens? They have to be dead. So that's what he's getting at. There has to be death to, to, for this will to go into effect. A will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, so he's using that as a comparison, therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So he made a transition. In his human example... The person making the covenant had to die. But then he goes to the Old Testament and says, when they made that covenant, 
something had to die. Of course, it wasn't a person in the Old Covenant. What died in the Old Covenant? The sacrifice. The sacrifice. The animals. So that was the Old Covenant. Verse 19, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all of the people, you can see this in Exodus, um, right after they've received the commandments, it says, He took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that the, that God commanded you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So in the Old Testament, basically there's blood how often? Oh, just all the time. There's, there's blood everywhere because there's sin everywhere. To get rid of sin, they had that constantly have blood everywhere. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Now see how he, he worded that. What things had to be purified? The copies. Meaning, it's not the real stuff. Not the real stuff getting purified there. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these but really it's not sacrifices plural. What are we talking about? Christ. It's going to be Christ. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Think about that. What's the concept there in that verse? It's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. What's he saying? This is order, so you die, and then what happens to you? Judgment. You get judged. Now, we could get a lot more particular about maybe the order of other events, but let's, those two, we're just talking about those two that go in that order. First, you die, then you get judged. Well, why bring that up? So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, because when did he do that? Once. That was his first coming. Once. But the second time he comes to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Save them from what? Judgment. Judgment. So think about the great white throne judgment in the book of Revelation. What's that judgment based on? Your works. you got volumes of books you will be judged by. But there's another judgment, at least in Revelation, happening right there that's a little bit different. Another group of people judged by something else. Do you remember? Whether or not their name is in the Lamb's book of life. And Jesus is going to show up with his book and say, no, I bought these. These are mine. Their sins aren't in those volumes over there. 
because I nailed him to a cross and the goal. Thus, he's coming back to save us from the wrath that God pours out in judgment. Just like it's appointed once for man to die and then face judgment, Jesus died to keep us from facing judgment. All right, Joanne, what you got? Was that a question? Or? Oh, a woohoo. I thought it was a question. Sorry. Sorry. Very much woohoo. But okay, so just jump back. Think about how he ended verse, the quotation from uh, in chapter 8. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Because where are those sins? Nailed to the cross. I love that passage in Colossians. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, all everything. But only unbelievers, yes. Yeah, you don't make that judgment. Well, assuming you're a believer. You don't make <laughs> yeah, so so the idea is in the book of Revelation, two 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 books get pulled out. One is just a single volume book, the other's like an encyclopedia. And everyone gets judged by the encyclopedia by all their sins, except for those people whose names, as opposed to list of sins, is written in the other book. So your list of sins is not written in that book. And I just love the way Paul words it in Colossians, that he took a certificate of debt and nailed it to the cross. And like it's like your pages were torn out of the volume and put on the cross, nailed to the cross, and done away with. And that's why I'm emphasizing that happened on the cross at that moment once for all and he secured for you eternal redemption and so there's no way whatsoever <coughs> if Christ has done that for you that it doesn't prove effectual in your life guaranteed because he's not like Moses and that he produces disobedience he produces righteousness and eventually takes us to the rest which is where we're headed so there's a lot of good to come but Jesus will come a second time to save his people. So we're going to get a lot of uh, resurrection coming in the next few chapters. So that's exciting. Ooh, five minutes. Any other questions? We'll, we'll still face a judgment. Make, have to make an account. Believers, believers still face a judgment, but it's a very different nature, and it's technically at a different time. Yes. And it's um, sometimes called the beam of judgment, but that's just the Greek word for seat. Because it uses the word seat instead of throne when it talks about that one. But um, it is a separate judgment. Either way, it happened before. We're, we're, we're together on that point. Okay. All right. Well, uh, we'll just be early. Totally right, yes. I didn't think to mention that. Allison is having surgery on the nerve. And 29th. That's, so we'll have one more Wednesday before that, yeah. So, okay. Sunday, service starts, we say 11. We always start late, but we say 11. And I... There'll be people here by about 10.45. 1045, coffee, donuts, hanging out, that kind of thing. So 
Well, we can do that. All right. Thank you for filling in the time, too. That almost bought me another minute. So, <laughs> all right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. Pray that you bless our study. Help us to think faithfully and clearly about the scriptures and make sense of what it says. But God, I pray that in the end, our focus would be on the glorious redemption that Christ has purchased for us. He is our great high priest that once for all, he entered into the true tabernacle and offered himself and cleansed our conscience from dead works so that we could serve the living God. So God, I pray that we would feel that redemption, that we would know that redemption in our daily lives as we walk closer, as we grow in our sanctification. God, help us to be faithful. Help us to to treasure Christ more and more as we see who he is and what he has done. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.